First Corinthians chapter 11, 17 to 26. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come to gather, gather, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he betrayed, was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he arrives. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, as we look to your word, may the musings of uh, my mouth be useful to your people as we uh, seek to be changed by you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Nora Ephron once said, a family is a group of people who eat the same thing for dinner. And there's two types of people in this world. People who eat to live, and then there's the people who live to eat. My family represents both sides of that way of life. Now, my wife does not dislike good food. She enjoys good food. She does not need good food. All she needs is a little portion of something. In fact, in college, she would often, well, early in our marriage, she would talk about in college, she would make quesadillas. And I thought, quesadillas are good. I like a good quesadilla fried up in a little butter or oil with some chicken in it, or maybe some black beans and some diced up vegetables of different, whatever you have in the house. Don't, you don't have to go out and get anything particular. No, what she meant was the shredded up um, cheddar folded up in a tortilla, nuked in the microwave for 60 seconds or less. And she called that a quesadilla. I called that sadness. But you see, there is something about eating together. You know, that, that's why in the Old Testament law, the, 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 the Jews were prohibited from eating with their neighbors. That's why the, the food laws were created in a way so that if you eat with somebody, you start to get friendly with someone. You start to get friendly with someone. You start to get chummy. You start to get chummy. You start, well, your kids start playing together. They start playing together. They start marrying. And then you start having kids that are going to be raised to worship Adonai and Baal. God, the true God, the one God over all, or man-made facsimiles that represent something else. You see, there's the thread, there's the line, there's the, the reasons for it. But then we also know that 
when Peter was about to receive an invitation to go to the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. What vision was he given by God? Kill and eat. Oh, I've never eaten those, Lord. I, I, don't even, I don't even know the word bacon, let alone its glorious smell or its crispy, but not too crisp, northerners. Got to have a little bend in that bacon. You see, he never tasted those delights because he was a pure, good, faithful man. But then God said, who are you to call unclean that, that which I have made clean? And clearly it wasn't about food, was it? But it was about people. It was about barriers. It was about walls. Walls that have been broken down and torn down. Meals. I've been encouraged to put together a, a number of sermon series out stretching out so that we can plan the music ahead of time. So I, I wrapped that up and I sent it to Bob. Um, I, whenever I give Bob a deadline, he can always expect that it's about like two hours after work on the day that I said that he's going to receive that. Is that right, Bob? You're just used to that now? But he received this week this list that takes us all the way up to Advent. And I'm, I'm, in a few weeks, we're going to start a series called Dining Dinners with Jesus. Because we're just going to take a look at passages where Jesus is eating with people. And oddly enough, it's not about the food, but you can guess. There's a lot of interesting interactions, interesting occurrences that happen around the table. I owned an old house once where we had this interesting two-door entrance. It was a house in Ohio built in 1865, and it had two front doors. One front door was where the family would enter, and the other front door was for entertaining it where you'd enter into the front parlor. This house was four rooms, three rooms, 823 square foot, and it still had a front parlor. That's where you would greet people, that's where you would entertain, that they would come in and go no further. But that's not our culture, is it, today? Where does life live? In the kitchen. I had a home, and I like to cook. I like to be the person who entertains. I also like to chase everybody out of my kitchen at certain points, and they won't leave. <laughs> that's why I love to have a kitchen with an island, so that I can put some things out there and at least have them facing one direction and not in my way while I continue to cook. A family is a group of people who eat the same thing for dinner. I'll tell you, I was amazed when I was going to Westminster Theological Seminary. That, that school happens to, on the given year, has anywhere from 25 to 45% of the student body population are uh, first-generation Korean uh, students. And I was so jealous of the Korean community because I don't know how this happens. I don't know whether it's an email, a sign-up, or just the miraculous work of their, their culture, but everybody shows up with some little boxes of different foods, and nobody has plates that I can see, but they just all have chopsticks and little Tupperwares of all sorts of different things, and then everybody just eats. Together they make a little potluck. And every day that I was there, I'd look over and I'd be there with my little ham sandwich, <laughs> my sad ham sandwich. What do you, what, I don't even know what that is. That looks, looks great. But was it about the food? Yes. But was it also about the fact that they got together? I remember uh, I was having, uh, I may have told, shared this story with you before, but Jerry, I, Amiri, and I were having dinner with a number of people. 
down at an Italian restaurant in South Philly. And he shared a story about how he went and he ordered a steak at some meal and the person who he was dining with, it was about eight people, was from another country and said, you know, in our culture, you don't order your own meal. Everybody orders things for the table and then everybody has a little bit. And Jerry was thinking, but I want my steak. But they caved into the pressure. And all of a sudden, they had the most miraculous, beautiful, memorable meal because everybody just passed it around. I've seen in the world of when, when the pandemic was starting, and I spent way too much time on TikTok. I saw something that illustrated that in, in, in the Chinese culture that they look and watch typical European Americans come in and order at the restaurant, and one person's orders the fish, and one person's orders this meal and this meal, and they all just eat their meal, and that is just not the way it's done. You typically order a few things, and everybody takes a little portion. You see, somehow in our world of individualism, we've lost part of the beauty of eating together. We've lost part of the beauty of the communal meal. Even our potlucks go too far. Oh, I hesitate to do this one because I like that they go too far. I like that you all are somehow choosing to out-impress each other with what a cool salad you can bring. I love that you bring something that shows your particular taste and flavors or even your ethnic background. I love that I got to eat really good tabbouleh at the last potluck. I haven't had tabbouleh in a long time and I love it. And it reminded me I need to make it. And if you don't know what tabbouleh is, you need to try it. It's delicious, it's refreshing, it's bright. I want you to out-salad each other inside each other. And yet, that kills the spirit of the communal meal, doesn't it? It's not about impressing one another. It's about being together, eating together, enjoying the meal. And in the first century, when the early church was just starting, when this letter, which is one of the earliest letters written, this letter actually predates the Gospels. Interestingly enough, in this passage that was just read for us, it's one of the first ever actual written words of Jesus we have. Because this letter far predates the Gospels. Here we have a situation where the people are gathering for the love feast. They're gathering for communion, not like we do with just a little cup and a little morsel. They gathered around the tables or on the floor or wherever it was in the eating of their culture, and they had a meal together. I do love how Paul gets a little snarky with them and says, Don't you people have homes? I'll let you know, I said that every week for 17 years when youth group was not just over, but it was over, over. And some of those kids would not seem to, like, don't you people have homes? I quoted scripture at them. Out of context, but it's rightly applied. See, this is the issue with the kingdom. It is not just about coming in and checking the box. It's not what mass has become for so many people who just go in, check the box, receive the gift, ate the meal, moved on. No, this community life is so integral. And the sacraments themselves bear witness to the community life of the church and the kingdom. This, after all, is the kingdom. It's a bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered together, not because we're rich, not because we're worthy, not because we're good, but because we are hungry, because we long for more. And just as the fish and loaves continually to multiply, so the companions of Jesus and the family keeps growing and growing. Isn't that the picture of the kingdom that we want? And so therefore, we need to gather around the table. I have a little bit of a news for you. Um, when I inherited this position, 
I heard that there was work being done towards moving our church from a once a month to a twice a month communion, all the way to an, an every week communion church. Did you know that? Did it, if you didn't know that, well, be notified today. So this is the last month that we're going to do communion twice a month. And starting in October, we're going to start doing communion every week. So what is that going to entail? Well, every week, instead of wondering about how the music is going to go or, or was the sermon good, we're going to close our time together in the presence of Jesus. We're going to, to admit our need and our hunger and focus on Jesus. What it also means is we might need a couple more volunteers to help set it up, kind of the practical side. So if that interests you, please feel free to, to volunteer to help. But you see, communion is not a mere reflection of the, of the crucifixion. It is not only that or limited to that. It is the seeking of Christ's real presence. And I cannot think of a better way for us to gather in the name of Jesus and seek his real presence together. Occasionally somebody tells me when they, just because it's, if you grew up in a world where you had communion once a month or less, it just seems different. And so when we come across something different, we usually find a reason why not to do it, right? Well, there's a lot of setup. Well, I've been encouraged to say it doesn't take a lot of setup. It does, but it doesn't. Well, what if we do it too often? Let's think about that argument. Can we do communion too often? Can we encounter the real presence of Jesus too often? I mean, if you answer yes to that, I'll let the elders go at it first with you, um, just to kind of encourage you. No. Do we pray every day? Do we seek the Lord? Do we study his word? In an ideal world, do we encounter the risen Christ daily? Absolutely. So why withhold encountering Christ? Well, what if I don't do it in a worthy manner? Well, then I encourage you two things. To do communion in a worthy manner to do the work that's required to keep the relationships healed and in good order, but also trust in the grace of God, which is what we're celebrating at the table in the first place, the grace of God. Communion is not a mere reflection of crucifixion, but it's the seeking of Christ's real presence. With all the conceptual truths, this is an interesting thing, Barbara Brown Taylor said, with all the conceptual truths in the universe at his disposal, Jesus did not give his disciples something to think about. He didn't get, leave them a, a list of issues to ponder together when he was gone. Instead, he gave them concrete things to do. Specific ways of being together in their bodies that would go on teaching them what they needed to know when he was no longer around to teach them himself. He said, do this, he said. Not believe this, he do this in remembrance of me. I think there's a beautiful thing about the table that we are coming, if there's one place in our life during the week that we can come and say, I don't have a resume to offer, it's the table. If there's a place that we don't feel we have to earn to receive, it's the table. If there's not a place where we're checking the merits of Oh, God, I've done enough quiet time, so you kind of owe me one. We don't bring that to the table. 
So if anything, it's one of the most pure moments of the week that we can gather, worship, and, and realign. Realign our lives again towards the purity of seeking Christ, him crucified, him resurrected. <coughs> See, the elements of the meal are identified in different ways. The body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ shed, the bread of heaven, the cup of salvation, the mystery of faith, the supper of the Lamb. There's so many traditions about the way we do communion, whether it's once a month, once a quarter, every week. Whether it's you tear off a piece of bread and dunk it, or whether you have a meal together and sit around the table, or if you have a little, oh, heaven forbid, you have a little plastic cup that you have to peel back and then take one and then... You can tell I have a preference against those. They do in a pinch, but may we never be pinched. There's so many ways we can come to the Lord's table, but what do they all conclude with? At some point, someone says, remember. Remember how God became one of us? Remember. Remember how God ate with us? How God drank with us? How he laughed with us? How he cried with us? Remember how God suffered for us, how he died for us, how he gave his life for us, how he gave his life for the world. Do you remember? Do we remember? For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By the way, that's the line that always transfixes my imagination. And I don't totally feel like I've unlocked the mysteries of that word. When we come to the table, when we hold the bread, when we drink the cup... In doing so, we proclaim Christ crucified. You see, we're good Protestants. We want to skip over the crucifixion. I mean, don't skip over it in, like, in a missing kind of way, but don't linger too long on the crucifixion because we want to get right to the what? The resurrection. But there's something about the need of Jesus being obedient to the Father being obedient to the Father, to going to the cross. And I don't want to just reduce it to a weird, limited, penal substitutionary atonement kind of idea where it's just Jesus had to take a penalty. I think it's deeper, broader, bigger, way more for us. I don't think we're going to ever drink from the bottom of the well of understanding the crucifixion and the atonement. I think we need to always continue to renew and refocus and come from a different angle. There's so many different theories of the atonement, of what happened on the cross. And so many add richness to our understanding of it. But let's not make it academic. Let's not make it a, 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 a lever pulled. Communion day, remember Jesus, get to the resurrection. Jesus had to go to the cross. In some part, we understand why. We who were trapped in the slavery of sin and death, we needed release. We needed rescue. And the only way that God saw fit to do that was to come down himself and to stand in the gap for us and to defeat death. 
That's why we jump so quickly to the resurrection, isn't it? Because we want to highlight the resurrection power. That's why we move the Sabbath, as the majority of the Protestant world, we move the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday so that we could celebrate resurrection power. By the way, does that mean we can only worship on Sunday? How about Wednesday? Can we hold a service on Wednesday? Especially if you're Baptist, you can hold a Wednesday service. Thursday? Friday? You get the idea. We proclaim Christ crucified. When we remember not just that he came and died, but he ate and he drank and he walked among us. He, he intercedes on our behalf because he knows what it is to be human. When I say to be human is, what do we always think of? Error. Because of an old cliche. But no. He knows the beauty and the sadness. He knows the heights and the depths. He knows the, the pain of loss and mourning a friend. But he also knows the power of life. Something about communion triggers our memory. Something about remembering who Jesus was and what he did. It awakens the memory. Maybe it's a, on a given day, it's a memory of when we first came to know Christ. Maybe it's a memory of what Christ had did long ago that we long to have been privy to. But something about communion triggers our memory and it helps us to see things as they really are. Something about communion opens our eyes to Jesus at the table. I'm going to tell you, I'm kind of in this one little area of bad Presbyterian. Because I'm supposed to fence the table. And some people take it very seriously, fencing the table. Has anybody ever heard the phrase fencing the table before? Has anybody not heard the t phrase fencing the table? Bless you. May your tribe... It's, but if you've ever heard a pastor say who should come up and who should not, that's fencing the table. And some churches fence the table at you've got to be a member of this church. Because they just don't want to have any errors. So they just said, we're going to vet our people. And if you're not a member of this church, take communion somewhere else. I don't hold that. I don't practice that. Some churches, they want to say, you got to be a baptized person. Um, I strongly encourage the sacrament of baptism. I really, if you have not been baptized, talk to me. I'd love the privilege of encouraging you and walking through and helping you maybe come to an understanding of let's get baptized. But I don't want to keep the communion from you if you hold faith in Christ. Some want to make sure that a non-believer does not possibly come up and take communion. But let me just throw this out, and I don't say it callously. If someone is not in Christ yet, do you think the grace of God will be withheld because they happen to come up and take communion out of social interaction pressure? Do you think that the divine election of the work of a sovereign God was, oh, two weeks from now, I was going to call you, but you took communion two weeks ahead of time, so no grace for you. No, I don't believe that's how it works. Right after this passage, by the way, I stopped right here because the passage was long, but right after it, Paul starts addressing the, the ramifications of their misuse of the Lord's table. 
Now, I want to highlight some things about that. The misuse of the Lord's table is not an unbeliever came through and had snack at church. That's not the case. The case is before this passage, the words of institution, and after was that they had continually effects of division among them. Remember chapter 1 a number of weeks ago, we hit chapter 1, and we highlighted how some were following Apollo, some were following Paul, some were following uh, uh, Peter, some were following Christ himself, the super pure. Well, here they were also having showing factions because they were eating different. Some would bring a big bounty, and some would exclude. Friends, one of the most beautiful things about communion is community. And what they were doing was they were breaking it. You see, the, one of the most beautiful things about the early church that we still need to learn today, we need to eat and consume and practice today, is that in Christ, all of our human boundaries are knocked down. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. There is no hierarchy in Christ because all who are in Christ are beloved children of God. And no one is varsity and no one is JV. Because in Christ, we are all in... Well, let's think of the cross. The, the, the playing field has been leveled because whether you are a devout, faithful follower or someone who's new to the faith, who lived like Hades, or maybe even an escaped convict, is that gentleman who's making waves around this community, is he outside the potential bounds of the grace of God? And I am glad you've lived a morally superior life to him. I'll just be honest. But does that make you eternally superior? No, the cross is the great leveling. And when the church starts to practice hierarchy within its worship service, what did we say a few weeks ago? The more we fracture this body into different tribes and hierarchies and in and out, we steal the very power of the gospel. So when we start to participate in the communion table and start to, in some ways, the way we exclude people from the table is a participation in that which weakens the proclamation of the gospel, that which weakens the effect of the community component of communion. So here's what I say. Who's welcome to this table? If you hold even the smallest thread of faith that Jesus is Lord, I invite you to come and be nourished. Come and receive the meal. Come and be the, the one. Your faith is starving. You need nourishment. Come to Christ. I actually have heard stories of people who are far from God, but were invited to church. And they went up. And in the, in the act of holding the bread and tasting the cup, in that moment, Jesus became real to them. So I don't want to withhold how God wants to work in your life. But I will say, if you want to hold on to your divisions, if your hierarchies, if you want to hold on to why that Christian is just not good enough that you don't have to deal with them, deal with your heart. Clear up those relationships. Take communion with a beautiful um, clarity of confession. And if you're not ready yet, 
then take a week off. Come back the next, or the one after that. One of the greatest stories of grace that I've ever known was um, Joy Jeffries, sweet lady out in Ohio. She's now with Jesus. She came to Christ in her 40s, and she was the, one, she was the little 80-year-old when I was a, a rookie youth pastor who had probably led 90% of the children of that church to Christ in kindergarten Sunday school. She was the sweetest lady. We called her the nicest human being in the universe, and she signed off her every phone call with the sweetest, and bye-bye. Once a month or so, she would take me out for breakfast because she was concerned as to whether or not I was getting a nourish, good nourish, nourishing meal as a bachelor. Little did she know, I had plenty of nourishing meals. But hey, she was going to take me out to Bob Evans. That was fun. Joy Jeffries had an interesting life, but she also had some real hardships, some sorrows. She had to come to a point where she had to choose to forgive her son-in-law, who chose to end the life of her daughter. He'd been a deacon in the church. He was all this. He was a, he was a medical doctor, but he was having an affair, and he thought his way out was to take a life. And he showed no remorse for years and years and years. But, but you know what Joy had to do? She wrestled with her pain, her sorrow, her anger. And she said it took her a couple months, but she had to forgive him. I'm like, Joy, why did you, why? How? I wanted to, I needed to take communion. What can I say there? That was a picture of God's grace. That was a picture of the table. That was a picture of the healing power. The only word of remorse she ever got from him in her lifetime was a letter 10 years later saying, thank you for not neglecting my children, as if she was going to do that. But still, in order for her to have peace with Jesus, she had to forgive the man who took so much because she saw that in Christ was greater than his evil. See, that's the power of communion. Something about communion triggers our memory and helps us to see things as they really are. Something about communion opens our eyes so that we see Jesus at the table. William Barclay said, the broken bread of the sacrament does stand for the body of Christ, but it does so much more. To those who break it and take it in their hand, and upon their lips with faith and love. It is a means not only of memory, but a living contact with Jesus. To the unbeliever, it would be nothing. But to all who love Jesus, it is the way to his presence. So why are we going to move towards having communion every week? I answer, why are we going to meet and gather in the name of Jesus and not go to the one place he said, I will meet you? I know often we have wonderful experiences when we look out over the vastness of the ocean or the Grand Canyon or just the beauty of a still, quiet morning. Somehow, we, because of the bustle and hustle of life, we are drawn to seeing God in nature. Wonderful. I'm glad that we encounter God on a good hike. But God will meet you when two or more are gathered in his name. God will meet you when we are singing his praises. God will meet you in his scriptures. And he for sure will meet you at the table where we are remembering his death and his resurrection. Foolishness to the Greek, stumbling block to the Jew, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So this morning, 
And as we enter into a time where we start taking communion at the end of every service, may you and I encounter the resurrected Lord. And may we proclaim his death until he comes again. Amen? Lord, as we continue to worship you, we thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you taught us to eat and drink your grace. Thank you for nourishing us in a bodily way so that we don't try to get too spiritual, but we get very tactile, very real, very earthly as a meal. So Lord, we ask that you would meet with us this morning as we are going to take and come to your table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, would you gather?